you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Thechrisvossshow.com. I don't know why you guys love that, but I always have to do it because you run up to me and do that to me wherever an event I go. Thechrisvossshow.com. And I'm like, uh, security. Anyway, guys, uh, welcome to the big show. We certainly appreciate you guys being here. As always, refer the show to your family and friends. Uh, we've got an amazing author on the show. He's from, all the way from Oxford, from across the pond, as we like to say, uh, over there on the British Isles. <laughs> is the british out no it's britain but it's somewhere over there i'm american nothing exists without uh outside of our sphere of experience because we're uneducated over here so in the meantime we have someone on a brilliant professor to educate us as well in the meantime go to goodreads.com for says chris voss youtube.com for says chris voss uh linkedin.com for says chris voss and our new uh artificial intelligence podcast that we just launched and uh we put some of the uh great artificial intelligence ai uh, interviews that we've done on the Chris Foss show on that new vertical over there. And uh, we'll be sharing a lot of shows over there. So go see that. Uh, and we'll also be doing a few more interviews, maybe 10%, 20% more interviews on the show with uh, AI specialists. So we'll be talking about that and how it's going to change the world. So that might be interesting. Uh, he is the author of the amazing new book that just came out April 18th, 2023. Peter Frankopan is on the show. He's a professor at Oxford. Uh, he has written a new book called The Earth Transformed, an untold history that just came out. You can order fine books are sold everywhere. Stay away alleyway bookstores because they're dangerous. You can sub your toe and get tetanus in them. Uh, so that's bad. Or you get mugged. I don't know. Uh, he is a professor of global history at Oxford University. He is the author of The First Crusade, The Call from the East, the Silk Roads, A New History of the World, and The New Silk Roads, The Present and Future of the World, and he lives in Oxford. Welcome to the show, Peter. How are you? Hey, Chris. Very good. And I just when you're saying about AI, you know, I, this could be, I could be in your last six-month window of guests, because I'd have thought we're close to the point where you'll get an AI version of me speaking whichever language you want by, by the end go. of this year. So that'll, that'll be more interesting for everybody, rather than having to put up with a real me, and you can, you can dial me in to say whatever you like. And me too. I mean, there's there's podcasts now that uh, they're trying to have run by AI. They're so not. We could, as, go fishing, we could go fishing instead. There you go. Well, they're not as funny as me yet. <laughs> given time, uh, and uh, they don't have this idiot personality that I have. So uh, there's See, that. That's, that's how AI is going to stay ahead. So you're you're safe, but a professor, they're, they're definitely replaceable. Just press a button. And say, give me twenty minutes about the U.S. Civil War. Yeah. Once and, they can. Uh, once once they can be funny, I'm fucked. So they're funny and interesting in character. And, and I don't know people, people, I don't know why people tell me they tune in for me. And I'm like, why we have such great guests. Like I'm not that interesting people. And that's why we have guests on the show like yourself. So uh, Peter, give us your dot coms. So people can find you on the interwebs and uh, track you down better. So I'm on Twitter at Peter Frankopan with a K. And then uh, my web address is www.peterfrankopan.com. 
Uh, that's it. Otherwise, you can find me on the Oxford University website. But please, please, I've got soft, I've got thin skin, so I only like compliments. If you've got something really with beef, then give me a second shot. Get Chris to invite me back, and we'll we'll sort it out that way. There you go. Yeah. Sending apologetic emails, right? I advise not getting on Twitter. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, the hate yeah, will come. Funny. So you wrote this giant book. Uh, could you made it larger? Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. It's 600 and I think 700 pages, a beautiful book with uh, lots of different pictures and maps. I can't read clearly. So, uh, that's why I like the beautiful pictures. Uh, what motivated you want to write this book? Well, so my, 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 I work mostly on regions. I work on Russia, Ukraine, uh, China, Iran, Central Asia, parts of the world that are on the move a lot at the moment. And, and I, I guess whichever way you have your political persuasion, one of the big questions of the 21st century is the rise of China. What does that mean for the US? What does that mean for China? What does that mean for the rest of the world? And I thought the second really big question is what's going on with our, our climate and with our natural world? It's not just about global warmings and things like that. It's also about, well, your Great Lake and Salt Lake um, or, or, or how we treat the environment around us so that every single cubic meter of seawater now in the oceans has 40 pieces of plastic micro, uh, microplastics. That's probably not great to be eating, drinking, and so on. So trying to understand how we've got to this point where we, we turn out we're not such great custodians of the great outdoors as we maybe could and should be. What does that mean for us going forwards? Uh, how people manage to cope with major events in the past of climate change to do with the sun, to do with weather systems, but volcanoes, how have people managed to stay standing? So trying to think about the history of our relationship, the human relationship with the, with the, with the natural world. There you go. And so a uh, huge book uh, and uh, the earth transformed. Now you call this an untold story in the title. Why is this an untold story? Well, there are lots of great environmental historians, but but generally people in my world as professors tend to work on, on one particular period or one particular region. So it's untold insofar as I start at the beginning, and I mean literally the beginning of the world's creation, and bring it through to the world of today. And so it's got a big chronological range. Uh, most historians, again, tend to focus on one region, you know, mm -hmm. one continent maybe, but there are lots of places in the world we can learn from that we just don't learn about in school, in Oceania, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in the, in the Americas before the Europeans got there. So trying to be more like that, that, that's, I think, a big sweep geographically. But the third, I guess, most interesting thing is that in my world, history, when I was a kid, was all about reading books, learning what dead people wrote about in the past, and occasionally looking at buildings they lived in that were, are old. But in, in the world of history right now, the things that are moving fastest are the sciences. So mm -hmm. looking at migration, how people are moving, you, you now don't just have to work out how many people arrived on the east coast of America and went westwards. You, you can look at, at genetics about who's marrying whom, or, who's, or at least who's reproducing where and how and how frequently and how well you can mm -hmm. measure through tooth enamel or through bones what people are eating you can wow. look at things to do with past climate changes about how 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 full lakes were for example salt lake is 20 percent, 20 feet lower, lower than it was at its peak rather an uh, average peak and so you could you've got lots of data now that you can think about the past in a in a different way so it's untold because a lot of those tools are really pretty new because the sciences have made lots of gallops forward that, that's making historians like me think hard about what skills you need to, to study history. You mean all those idiot cavemen who uh, wrote all these histories were wrong? They didn't uh, get molecular, molecular biology right? 
So I did a, I've done, I did a bit, a little bit on those cavemen. And the thing that was interesting about the caves is those guys are all of our kind of common ancestors. They worked out very carefully where to put the fire in the middle in the cave that it would cause the least amount of toxicity for them. Ah. And once they kind of worked out where to put it, that information seems to be passed on from generation to generation. So they, they may not have had the most exciting diet or Friday evenings or, or mm -hmm. bank holiday weekends. But the, but the way in which knowledge was passed along was, was I think, was, was quite interesting, even, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70,000 years ago or more. There you go. So I'm an atheist, so you probably started when the world began around Adam and Eve, and then uh, yeah. you probably, like, uh, no one ever talks about how Noah got, like, all the microbes on the ark, at least two in pairs, uh, and uh, other things like that. So you probably cover that right in the book? Uh, I, yeah. Well, I cover. No, I, I I do the creation from the beginning of geological time, so four and a half oh. million years ago. Right. Even for your listeners who are not atheists, <laughs> will will understand the same story, which is that God created the world to be perfect and then put humans in absolutely last. Yeah, that and was then, bad. And then, and then when they when they when they messed it all up, they got punished environmentally and ecologically. But in in the kind of way I tell it, the, those, that that flood of Noah isn't just a Bible story. Mm. It's also in, in Quran and other religious texts. It's also in Mesopotamia chronicles. So chronicles written in what's now Iraq, which is one of the earliest civilizations. Texts in in Egypt writing about this enormous flood. And mm. forget about the animals and the. I guess the micro is probably inside the animals. Would be my guess. Oh, yeah. How they stuck around. Yeah. Um, but there was obviously. What about the dinosaurs? How do you get them on the ark? Yeah, those are a little, bit, those are a little bit harder. I think the vegetarian ones are probably okay, but I think that there, there was obviously some massive flood event to do yeah. with exceptional levels that scared that that scared people in the past, and and it scared to the point that they wrote it. Well, first they tried to understand why it happened, and for them it was all about them being God God punishing them, mm -hmm. but also they wrote it down so future generations would be aware that this might come towards them. So mm -hmm. that it's been a, it's been around for a long time. People have been worried about changing climates. There you go. We've had a changing climate here in Utah, as you mentioned earlier, with the Great yeah. Salt Lake. And yeah. we've had like this, I've the record snowfall, I believe, that we've ever had here. And so now I'm building an ark, actually, because <laughs> it's, it's starting to melt. Make so, sure you've got plenty of water and, and make sure you've got all your Netflix films downloaded because if the Wi-Fi goes down in the flood, you've got to make sure it's on your tablet ready to watch. We've got a Starlink, uh, Elon Musk Starlink for the Ark. Um, okay. But the, okay. the one thing I'm having a problem figuring out is, uh, if you remember the old Bill Cosby bit, what's a cubit? <laughs> <laughs> so give us some tease-outs of some of the stories or findings that, that are in the book so we can entice people to want to pick it up. Okay, well, uh, I'll give one, one good example is uh, the, the 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 Roman Empire. People remember from that great Gladiators. That's a that great film with um, with the Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix. I gathered, in fact, today, hot off the press, that Pedro Pascal is in discussions to make a, a follow up. Mm. So I, I guess that'll be Gladiator before he before he dies, maybe the early years. Mm. Uh, but the Roman Rome Rome went to become went from being a kind of important military powered state with a really strong. Uh, army into a proper empire because partly because of a, a volcanic eruption in Alaska um, about 2000 years ago. So Julius Caesar, I remember you learned probably a little bit about Julius Caesar at school. You heard his name that he was killed because he was trying to become king. Mm. Um, the, the men who killed him scattered because people need to take vengeance. You can't just get away with killing, you know, such a senior figure for free. And th those who went out to go and pursue, pursue them, uh, eventually, uh, as they were going out to pursue this, this volcanic eruption took place in Alaska that injected huge amounts of aerosols into the atmosphere. 
And what that tends to do depends on what time of year it goes and the latitude and so on. It puts uh, it, it changes the ways in which the sun's rays can reach our Earth. It goes without saying, right? So mm. it's photosynthesis is harder. Crops are lower in their yields. Sometimes they fail altogether. And there was an effect in Egypt on the Nile. And the Nile is this big, big river that every year floods. And the waters, when they flood, produce silt and water over this wonderful, produce this grain that is like the Midwest, are almost unlimited, can feed everybody. And because there's so much of it, it's also cheap. And that Nile, that Nile flood failed because of the um, this volcanic eruption. Hmm. And the ruler of Egypt at that time was a woman called Cleopatra. Again, they're making a film about her at the moment right now that's getting a lot of press. And Cleopatra was from a Greek dynasty who'd ruled for the last 200 years. She was a woman that made life difficult. And the way that the Egyptians kept power in their family was uh, marrying their brothers and sisters, which was, I think, probably not the same as happens in some counties in, in the United States. It's where you marry your brother and sister to stop other people getting access to power because you don't want to promote anybody else. And as a result of that, she had to gamble on who was going to win in the race to become the master of Rome. And she mm -hmm. threw a lot in with uh, Mark Antony, played by Richard Burton in the movie. Uh, and she gambled wrong because the guy who, who managed to screw them both over, if you excuse my language, was a, a cal calculated little little weasel of a figure called Octavian. Mm. Ah. And by getting Cleopatra and Mark Antony to either be killed or kill themselves, depending how you, how you see it, he managed to capture the whole of Egypt and take all of the produce of its wheat and its agriculture and its cities and its taxes back to ancient Rome, and it made Rome into an empire. When he died, he wrote on his on his epitaph, he said, I found Rome built in brick, and I left it in marble. And amongst the things that also happened in that period, you've always said you're an atheist, but Jesus Christ was born in the reign of this guy, whose, whose new name was given, was called Augustus. He's ah. the hero, by the way, of, of, of Mark Zuckerberg. He's the one that Mark Zuckerberg models his story on. So in the, in the Facebook version of this story, Egypt is Instagram. It's the bit that everybody likes and wants to use, or maybe WhatsApp. Mm. Uh, and it's what made Rome into a huge empire. So there were lots of reasons for that. Rome's politics, Julius Caesar, the, these particular individuals, Cleopatra, her Greek ancestry, but the volcanic eruption played a role. And quite often there's there's something involved in uh, natural world things that pushes on and so pushes on into the real world. So I'll give you one other quick example, Chris. Can I, uh, let me uh, yeah. pause you there uh, to get something in. Um, yeah. You know, that's interesting because I've, I've always heard, you know, I'm a big Marcus Aurelius fan. Uh, is it Marcus Aurelius? Yeah. I'm getting old. Uh, I you know, Marcus I keep Aurelius. the meditations. Yeah. Uh, right there. Right, right at all times. I'm a stoic. Uh, I love stoicism. Yeah. Ryan Holiday writes some great books. Um, nice. And uh, so I didn't know that about the, the you know i've i've always heard the cleopatra story and you know how she seduced a lot of the roman guys and 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 all that stuff but i didn't know about that scientific thing right that so about. So what's interesting the side is, is is self preservation you know that's what mm -hmm. if you're if you're vulnerable you want to make sure you've got support everywhere so that's not just you know she's a the way it was told in the past you know, she's a woman she can't control her own emotions it's more if you're a leader in a precarious position yeah. you want to make sure you're not going to get knocked over from any of your elites inside your country, let alone from those outside. So that 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 eruption is a kind of it's a it's a it's a factor. It's not perhaps the determinant one. These mm -hmm. things would have all been there anyway, it might have happened anyway. But it, it just meant that when the Nile flood failed, the mm -hmm. prices of crops went up, uh, inflation went up as a result. The people who suffer most are always the poor when that happens. The cost of living is a real thing back then too. And that means that people 
what were quite interested in in a change of direction. And if the change of direction better still doesn't come from somebody Egyptian, then mm -hmm. the ruling the, the most powerful families don't have to decide which one of them takes power. Actually, having an outsider come back in to replace her is quite an elegant solution too. So. I think it's how we think about history. It's trying to make sure we always factor that in. And, and that's the same actually in the present day too, today too. So for example, over here in Europe, we've got, we're living through a, a, a current really bad war where the Russians have invaded Ukraine. Mm. And one of the drivers for that, again, was the earthquake off Fukushima in 2008, which uh, mm. produced that awful tsunami that killed so many people in mm. Japan. But one of the effects of that had is it startled the green lobby in Europe that said, look, nuclear power is really dangerous because if a reactor ruptures, millions of people are at risk. And so Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany at that time, decided to shut down all German nuclear power and say, it's OK, guys, we don't need that. It's dangerous. Plus, I get to look green. We can get unlimited gas uh, and natural gas and oil from our friends in Russia. And in fact, we'll build a new pipeline. And so Mr. Putin thought, great, we've now got 60% of all German energy comes from us in Russia. Either we can turn off the taps or make the Germans pay, but they're never going to send tanks or get in the way. Yeah. And the Germans took a, have taken a really long time to get to, to lean into what they should be doing in Ukraine because of that dependency. So mm -hmm. again, that earthquake wasn't the cause, wasn't the reason why Putin invaded, but it's absolutely definitely a factor in what has happened here in Europe in the last 12 months that, that's pushed energy prices around for you guys in the United States like it has done for us here. You could almost compare, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong because you're from England, but you could almost compare what, 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 uh, you know, the EU did buying, uh, you know, helping fund and flood, uh, Russia with money. I mean, cause all it is is a gas station and all Russia is a giant fucking gas station. And, uh, flooding him with money to give him the money to fight the Ukraine war. You could almost equate that to the same thing England was doing by selling, uh, airplane parts and engines and all the shit to Hitler before the war, you know, yeah. Churchill was going, Hey, what the fuck are we doing? And like, right. yeah, it's money, man. Uh, you know, whatever. Yeah. We did, we did the same things. To, I mean, we, I say, you know, it's a long time ago to you guys in the, in the, in the colonies in the United States. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in due course, those in the United States got, strong enough to say we're going to do this our own way and again i write about that in my book too oh. one of the kind of one of the key reasons which i wasn't told about at school around why the united states declared independence and got away with it wasn't just about no taxation without representation which you know everyone understands that it was also that the hurricane seasons in the 1760s and early 1770s were really really bad in the caribbean and the southern part of the united states which at that time was french and spanish mm -hmm. and merchants in philadelphia were being told by the government in London that they weren't allowed to sell goods and materials to the Spanish and the French because they were England's competitors at that time. And people living in the colonies are like, well, number one, your problems in Europe have got nothing to do with us. Number two, as, as one scholar's put it, this was the opportunity of a lifetime. So why would you not want to sell your food at marked up prices and, and make a fortune for yourselves? And that was one of the first reasons why the Congress was set up, was to try to make decisions that would benefit people living in American colonies. Again, partly to do with the fact that, th that these, these islands like Cuba had been ravaged by such bad hurricanes, people couldn't eat. Mm. And when people can't eat, they're prepared to pay top dollar to get what they need. And that's a bonanza if you're on the right side of the equation. So these, these kind of stories around how climate patterns, etc., lead it you know feed into how we should think about history it's, it's about putting all that back in as uh, you know back into the story maybe maybe one level above the footnotes but they're always it always should be there
Yeah. I mean, it, it's, I, I love history and I love the authors like yourself that come on the show that talk about history because the one thing we can learn from history is that uh, man never learns from his history. But there's so many important lessons. And to me, I've always loved history because it, it's, a, it's a huge strategy chessboard with a lot of moving pieces. And so what you're doing, I guess, with the book is filling in those pieces from a science, a new science based sort of thing to go hey there were there were other moving pieces in this and 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 maybe that wasn't told in previous history because these idiots that were came and were writing on walls and telling stories where they were i don't know high on nabisca or something I don't know. yeah that's right <laughs> yeah and i think that look at look at changes the, the spanish who settled florida for the net for the first hundred years wrote back to the king of spain saying this place is so so freaking freezing we can't live here. It's too cold. And it's not just because they're Spanish and Spanish have nice weather and nice climates. It's because it was significantly cooler in that time. And mm -hmm. those changes are ones that, that we don't sort of think about, we, you know, with Henry VIII or George Washington or the Romans. Was the temperature about the same? Did it rain the same amount? Was it stable? How did people cope with stress? And, and one of the things that, that climates do, like you've had, you know, these snowstorms in L.A. in March and you know, uh, huge droughts followed by massive rains. It's it's really hard to adapt to those kinds of shocks. It's not impossible, but it's mm. normally quite expensive. And you don't know what you're planning for, whether one year you're going to have too much rain and one the next. And that's the bit that's really hard for humans is to cope with sudden shocks to your household budgets, sudden shocks to your environmental budgets. Yeah. And I imagine, I mean, there was, Ingham was uh, doing a lot of stripping of minerals and just about anything off of us. It was basically a you know, resource grab. And I, th that was probably one of the other factors, wasn't it? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think that that's, that's all an empire is. Yeah. That, that's what Amazon is. That's what the Roman Empire was. That's what, that's what, you know, the Mughal Empire, that's what Russia is. That's the all empires. set on Amazon, I guess, nowadays, huh? Well, maybe, or, or, or other similar type of digital businesses. <laughs> it's, it's always about trying to control resource. And sometimes that resource could be data. Often yeah. it's environmental. Sometimes it's manpower or, or human labor. But it's always about how do you get things from your periphery and cycle them back to the center, and and that's that's no different to that. That's the same kind of pathology for all empires. We, in Britain, we were pretty good at doing that. Uh, ironically, the weakness of the British Empire, despite the fact it covered a quarter of the globe hundred years ago, is it didn't have a single piece of proper oil that mm. was exploitable. So it meant that the British needed to get involved in the Middle East, which we then successfully screwed up with a bit of help from our American cousins, mm. and you know. It's got plenty of people locally who can screw it up for themselves, but it didn't help the way in which it was carved into a series of states at the end of the First World War to suit what, where we thought oil lay and how how well we thought we'd be able to get it for for our motor industries, Royal Navy, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and we're seeing, you know, it's it's been, you know, I've been hearing about climate change for a long time, and now it's just become really obvious to everybody. I mean, you know, like we talked about the Salt Lake City thing, uh, how the snowfall and rainfall has finally come in. In fact, uh, my friends in California had, like, you know, flooding because they had massive rainfalls and the reservoirs seem to be rising. But, you know, we're seeing rising seawaters and stuff. And people are starting to see problems with that. You know, it's becoming really obvious that something is not working. Uh, and so there's the there's the political aspect of it and that flows into it. There's migrant activity that, of course, has issues with right wing and left wing people going, ah, this, that and the other. You know, I just saw that uh, 
Uh, there's maybe a new migrant surge at the border and the Biden administration is sending more people down uh, to deal with that. And of course, I'm sure migration has something to do with, you know, what's going on with environments. And like you said, people having food and access to uh, clean water and all that stuff. And it's really interesting how all of those moving pieces in the chessboard play together. Yeah. And I don't know whether it's, 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 it's neither good nor bad. It's just that that's what it is. You know yeah. I mean? Uh, you know, they're, they're, but what, what studying history will tell you is that we, we're not seeing anything new. This has all happened before. Mm. Um, and often those outcomes are really, really bad. So the equivalent of New York City 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, they're not there anymore. They're just a set of brick walls, right? They've mm -hmm. gone because they couldn't adapt. They couldn't adapt to inbound migration. They couldn't adapt to water pressure. They couldn't adapt to disease. They couldn't adapt to all sorts of different things. And so... Mm -hmm. Uh, but but the the same things always. It's about resource scarcity. It's about political decision making. It's about inequality because that that's, that that it's not unfortunately distributed equally when there's uh, when there are crises. Migrations, funny enough, they tend to be slightly different. Usually, people don't get up and leave. They normally try and make stuff work until it's impossible, and then then the starvation can happen, famines, and in places like India, there were repeated famines which claimed the lives of hundreds of thousands, if not millions in some cases, mm. um, where because people want to stay with their families. They don't want to leave their homes. It's, it's a real wrench to do so. And it's quite hard to travel in really large numbers because having 20,000 people camped by, by a wall in the southern part of the United States has problems of its own. So, uh, so, But migration is likely to be part of something that we see in the future, for sure. Yeah. It's interesting how people, I think what I was leading to is how people vote and their geopolitics and everything else just like the cleopatra rome uh thing um you know i i didn't understand we've been a globalized economy now for a while i didn't understand how important ukraine was to to everything you know uh, green production uh, sunflower seeds are a big thing i guess sunflower oil I, I didn't realize how much that goes into stuff and and just a simple war like that i mean it's not a simple war i don't mean to minimize it but uh, uh or the loss of life but but it's interesting how something like that i think there's i can't remember what crops in china have been having a hard time lately but it's interesting how all this uh, plays out in the giant chessboard of life between politics and, and environment and and everything else and and just what's on probably people's kitchen tables and what they're dealing with as families and what they can afford and food etc cetera, etc cetera. um do you do you uh, there's a lot of people that feel that the future of in 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 the future of maybe our economies or the great things that are going to come out as new businesses or economies are going to be ones that fight climate change help climate change help resolve some of the issues of what we've created do you do you do you, do you have hope in humanity to accomplish that or are we just fucked yeah i think i think <laughs> i think i think, I think we're, not, we're not all in it equally and together i mean so you guys in the united states you've got one land border that people are going to migrate through and mm -hmm. that's your border with mexico that's it we in Europe, Canadians uh, sneak in. They're pretty Canadians, evil. I think probably it's the other way around. I, I imagine over time, if projections work out as they are, <laughs> you'll find Americans, uh, you know, not, you know, Americans moving northwards. Yeah, towards, that's usually more. It maybe even into Canada. So I, I'd keep I'd keep Trudeau on speed dial and, and make make sure he's happy. Yeah. But you, so you've got one, but you've got one direction that people will come or do come. We in Europe, it's a different story. You know, we're connected to Asia, we're connected to Africa, we're connected to these massive movements of people. So. I think there will be there. There are different challenges. There's most migration and refugees tend to spill into the next door country and stay there, hoping that they'll come back. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, do I have hope? Look, I think I think we as a species are extremely inventive, very resourceful. We're quite good in a crisis. You know, even even COVID. My own university, 
we had a functional vaccine before the end of March 2020, which is just as we were locking down here in the UK, a, a vaccine was, was viable. We then had to test it and scale it and distribute it. But, you know, we, we're quite good at solving big problems. But, but solving problems when you're doing them at speed is, is super expensive because you've got to try lots of things at the same time. Some of them are not going to work. And it also means that, that working out which is the right way to implement them is, is a challenge too. So with things like sea level rise, with climate, with food, China, you know, trying to be busy buying food supplies from all over the world on long-term contracts, paying up front, you know, it, it's, it's, we've all got to work out what, what, what are our vulnerabilities? What are opportunities? How do we protect farmers? How do we protect our own food supplies? And those things are tricky. You know, like in California, it's about half of the whole of half of the fruit crop of the entire United States comes from California. So, uh, with, the, with terrible drought, then taking water out of aquifers and depleting long-term water stocks, even if it rains a lot this spring and this summer and this fall, you know, there are there are consequences. So it's, it's understanding what your budget is and working out what's your plan B and your plan C. And I, I think, funnily enough, Putin has played a role in that. We're so worried about that. We're so worried about what China's doing. But finally, people are trying to think, what does is, what is United States PLC, or you know, what does the United States look like in the long run? And what, are we, what kind of questions are we not asking? Because this world of today, if we'd been talking before the pandemic, we'd have thought the world was, was hanging together pretty well, apart from Afghanistan, maybe. But right now, with AI, with China, with climate, with Russia, with energy, with bipartisanship, with half you know, your country thinking the other half are dangerous, which is what we think. In the, I mean, we're hoping the king is going to fix that this weekend. We have a we have a coronation. Maybe we'll all dance around holding hands again. But you know, th these are quite. It feels like quite a dark moment for us all. Deglobalization, uh, costs going up, and you know, I think we that 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 moment of thinking we're in trouble is where humans are actually quite good at, at then digging in. It's it's where you're you think the world's never going to end and the candy's going to keep on flowing or the candy doesn't flow, you know, the, the Kool-Aid is going to keep on flowing. That when That's the really hard bit. But these last few years have been quite sobering for us, I think. They have. I, and, you know, the one thing I hate, and this is why I promote history and uh, learning from history, is it seems like we always wait till, like, the shit hits the fan. Like, then we're like, yeah, we should probably do something about it now, you know? So, look, I write in, I write in, in the 6th century, there's a, a huge plague, far worse than coronavirus. It probably kills somewhere between 30 and 50% of the population of wow. Europe, North Africa. So ma mass mortality. Uh, there's something very similar about 600 years later called the Black Death, which, of course, you'll know about and your listeners will know about, that does roughly the same thing. Both of those two put in social distancing, alert systems, far better than anything we did in the world of high-tech, 21st century wow. so in milan in the 15 15 1500s the warning systems for making sure that you could detect incidences of plague anything that looks suspicious with rodents or other small animals that carry the plague back or help carry the plague bacterium on parasites and on bugs and things uh, much better at keeping an eye out for but because we'd sort of forgotten that, that was important we figured that globalization meant you could get laptops made cheaply in china and that was great because cheap laptop is a good laptop particularly if it's high quality we forgot to think that if people on sitting on an airplane flying from utah to new york starts coughing the whole plane might get infected with something we sort of forgot that those natural worlds are a part of where we inhabit and funny enough people four five hundred years ago understood that much much better than when ships came in they would have to quarantine you want to make sure that they're not bringing any nasties alongside all their their goods in the hold of the the cargo so we just got to relearn some of that stuff that's why the history is so important yeah, definitely. The one thing man can learn from his history is man 
never learns from his history. And that's why we go around and around, as we always say. Uh, so these are your important aspects. Uh, anything more you want to tease out on the book before we go? Uh, no, look, you know, I, I, we have a slightly different view of how what we think people in the United States think about climate change. We tend to think over here that there are a lot of people who are, get very hot under the collar about what climate change is, that they'll say, look, societies can cope with warming. It's nothing to worry about. And, you know, I'll tell you as a historian, that's not the case. That's why you're sitting in Utah, not in not in ancient Rome, you know, which is a beautiful city to visit. But it's no longer the center of a great global empire. United States would probably claim to be the world's great, greatest superpower by quite a long shot, I'd have thought, and is. Um, so that, that process of failing to adapt is, is kind of how we think about history. I think we think over there that you guys in the States are, are you know, we find it quite hard to understand some of your attitudes towards things like guns, <laughs> towards things like your constitution, towards things like, uh, you know, how, how people who are really rich think that it's a crime to pay taxes. So yeah. I, I recognize that the ecosystem that I'm talking to Sounds and looks very familiar, but it, it's very different to how we do things. But again, the, the the point I think with history is is not to come in with an agenda that I'm trying to tell everyone we're, we're doomed or we're saved, but it's to it's to be open minded about reading about the past and being informed to make your own conclusions about what you think is good or bad. For example, a single pair of jeans requires about seven and a half thousand liters of water to make. So that's about the average adult human's consumption of water for seven years. That's not necessarily bad. That's not necessarily good. That's just a fact that is probably quite useful to know in a world where maybe water is already quite scarce. Or if you live in a place that's got tons of water, that's fine if the genes are made there. But you probably don't want them made in places where, where, where the water is difficult. So I'm just an educator. So my job is to give people information, what decisions they want to make, who they want to vote into office, because parts of the world that we're talking about, we get to vote our legislators in. And half the world I work on, you don't. And, you know, we, we have a ch chance to, to ask for change if we want it. Mm. Uh, but it's but I think, therefore, it's all the more important in democratic worlds for people to be really well educated so they can choose what they want and choose their futures. Yeah, it's like that CBS or NBC PSA. The more you know. Uh, what, and before you go, uh, let me uh, do you write about the uh, your thoughts on, uh, uh, you know, the new electronic cars and stuff? And, and what's interesting to me is how much work goes in to make those batteries. And uh, even if even if one catches on fire, and they catch on fire evidently more than most cars, uh, it takes a lot more water to put it out. And even right. then, I mean, we have to over here. We're we're sinking them in pools and shit to for forty eight hours or a week or something because they can still catch fire. What are you, what's your thoughts on that? Are we really saving the environment with electric uh, car, no, or are we just yeah, running ourselves? Great question. So we, we, the, the, the <clears throat> EVs have have two main environmental downsides. One is they're quite a bit heavier than regular cars, mm -hmm. and that means that the wear off their tires is much higher than it is off a off a regular mm -hmm. petrol diesel car, and um, and that in turn means that we are we, the air quality is degraded with uh, PM two, so particulate matter, so very small small little specks of dust that are very closely linked to self-harming, cognitive problems, uh, shorter life expectancies, cardiovascular stuff. So heavier cars produce more of that stuff, um, measurably so. And so that, that's well, that's one thing we've got to work, we've got to keep an eye on. Mm -hmm. The other one is that uh, if you're not drilling gas out of the, out of the ground, uh, you need a lot more metal to be able to make some of these, not just the batteries, but the cars themselves mm -hmm. and the components. So that metal's got to come from somewhere too. And, and clean mining is not easy because typically, whether you're mining, as we've spoken about gold or other minerals, you've got to get rid of your tailings and you've got to dump them somewhere. And those quite often find their way into water systems. Mm -hmm. So 
EVs are cleaner in some ways because they don't burn carbon, but there are different footprints that they leave. The, the competition for copper in particular, but also lithium for the batteries and other components uh, is acute and will be like oil. It'll, it'll make some countries super rich. It'll make some individuals super rich. And that, that's a geological lottery of, of who that is. Uh, as it happens, I've got one of my colleagues at my university who's working on new battery technologies that could improve by a thousand times battery efficiency. He's a kind mm. of young genius. Uh, so, you know, the, all these things, they go in sort of moves and waves and cycles. But the EV stuff, uh, it's not a kind of straight, clean win, even if you could recycle, if there are no fires, if you can recycle them, if you can, because because of the heaviness and, and the materials that go into making them. But yeah. you know, the carbon stuff is, is, is the immediate problem we've got to try and solve, too. And then China's production with, you know, its coal plants, and I think it produces, what, 50% of pollution in the world? Yeah, something like that. I was seeing, I saw something on that, and I don't have the Yeah, so, so, it, so. So, so 496 out of the 500 most polluted cities on Earth are in, in, are in Asia, almost mainly in India and China. Mm -hmm. And in those parts of the world, in fact, there's quite a lot of environmental pressure groups, particularly in China, to demand cleaner air, because no one, as you get rich, particularly when you get richer, you know, you you make more demands of your government, even in communist party states. And mm -hmm. so environmental protest has been quite an important part of Chinese political activism for the last 20 or 30 years, which which does sometimes go on despite what we might might, might think. So China's putting a lot of money into green technologies, but the coal stuff is, is a problem. And some of the coal for that China gets its energy from, they're putting outside China. So it doesn't sit on their scorecard, but fits in places like Pakistan too. So uh, the environmental stuff there in, in the developing world is is hard, but the scale of these countries, I think it's almost unimaginable to you guys in the US. So in the US, there are 10 cities that have a population of more than a million people. In China, there are 156 cities with more than wow. a million people. Wow. And that's just a lot of energy that's needed. You know, everybody keeping their, fr their refrigerators going, everybody charging their laptops at night, watching TV, all, all, all those technological demands put huge pressure on your, on your energy consumption. And the International Energy Agency reckons that global energy needs are going to double in the next 20 years and that, that yeah. energy's got to come from somewhere so that the more we can do really cheaply and environmentally safely obviously the better for everybody yeah you mentioned india and at the beginning of the show i was actually one of my queued up questions was recently india it looks like china has really fucked itself by its one one child policy and they're trying to correct it but it looks like they've created the same sort of spiral downward uh that japan is going through right now and uh with generational and 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 being able to to keep up you know a country that is growing is dying same thing with the business um and it looks like india just passed i think it was last week or two weeks ago india just passed right. in size of population china That's right. and so everyone is always like china's rising china will be the future economy of the world you know i, I heard by 20 you know i think 10 years ago i heard but 2025 china will be the largest yeah. market and they'll beat us and and outpace us but now it looks like india really is the thing well china's economy I mean, these things you know so china's economy has been growing fast uh, but per capita income in China is only ten thousand dollars, so it doesn't. It's it's still not a rich country. There are there are obviously billionaires that seem to be everywhere in some of these big cities driving you know cars that are unbelievably expensive. But because there are one point four billion people in China, actually averages out. It's quite a low. It's 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 a low to medium income country. India has, like you say, has got a a, a, a young population. Median age in India is twenty eight. So you've got a lot of young people. And that's very exciting because that's mouths to feed, that's tech to buy, that's people to go on holiday and to travel. And disposable income in India has risen through the roof. So 
30 years ago, there were 2 million people had a disposable income, 2 million households, I should say, disposable income of $10,000. There are now 120 million people with disposable incomes of $10,000. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the last seven years, the number of it measured as in, extreme poor in India fell from 120 million to 15 million. So there's still terrible poverty in India, but India has been, been galvanizing really fast. It, its traditional weakness has been bad investment infrastructure, roads, the bureaucracy, etc. But even some of that has been, uh, the spending has gone up dramatically and the results have gone up. So India's in the process of trying to work this out, but it's got a race against the clock too, because it too is energy inefficient and energy short. It needs to import a lot of its energy resources. It needs to, it's it's, it's okay on the food, but it's hugely water stressed because yeah. there's 1.4 billion people. That's a lot of, that's a lot of visits to the toilet every day. That's a lot of visits, <laughs> there's a lot, lot of bathing to do. And that's a lot of stuff going into rivers. And, yeah. and that, that, that is the real Achilles heel that India has. It's re it, it's de very dependent on water coming down from the Himalayas every year. So low, low snowfall, glacier melts, uh, low rain levels can, and low monsoons can have a dramatic impact on what India's future might look like. But it looks like things will be going in the right direction. And 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 it needs to do something about its caste system, which which evidently is getting cracks. Maybe they need an Iron Lady. What the, was the your... political, the social political system in India right now is it's really tricky. You know, there are a lot of journalists in jail in India. There's a real sort of revival of uh, Hindu nationalism that is dividing citizens, not just because of caste, but also because of religious backgrounds, perceived loyalty to uh, India and those outside India. And, uh, you know, that there's, that's, it's a time of transition for India, looking really for figuring out what its future will be. But I guess if you were benign, you'd say, join the club. You know, what, that's what the next presidential election is, is, you know, what is America? There that's you one go. of the questions. Is it a global superpower or is it something that should turn itself maybe more inwards? We've got that problem here in Europe right now about are we joined at the hip to the US? Are we a separate power? Should we be making friends with China, even though that gets people in the White House very, very angry? How do we deal with Russia? The U.S. has been helping, but, you know, India, Africa is on the move, sub-Saharan and North Africa. So I think we're all facing quite, quite thorny questions and trying to do, do exams under pressure. You know, it's not, you don't always get the best answers. Well, hopefully King Charles can solve all that because he, he seems like the guy who will. He will. I'm sure he's a fine he man. And if you and guys in the U.S. feel that we're going in the right direction and want to rejoin, you let me know and I'll put in a good word. There was a there was a time a few years ago we were thinking about that. Uh, it might be a good yeah. idea. But, uh, you know, you we, seem to be, we, we're over. we seem to be coming back. But, uh, yeah. you know, I'm just glad you guys got a prime minister that, you know, stayed more than a week. Uh, it so depends we say this is being broadcast. We, we, <laughs> might, we might regret that. We, 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 went, we went through, I mean, I don't know. It felt like we went through kind of teenage wobble, you know. Yeah. Uh, but we're, we're back. It's, it's all under control. The great thing about Britain is it, it somehow – uh, somehow it all works. You know, I'm in a yeah. university that's been going for 800 years and there's not a day that goes by where I wonder how does it all stay together? We're 38 different colleges. We've got multiple different faculties trying to explain who we are to an outside and how things work, what gown you should wear on what day. Almost impossible. And yet here we are, you know, still still winning Nobel Prizes and doing all right. As Obama used to say, the uh, uh, he referred to us, but I think it's true of Britain too. I mean, we're a country that zigzags and we go back and forth, and sometimes we do stupid stuff, and sometimes we do good stuff, and and it's kind of a as we say in our constitution, it's the it's a drive for a perfect union, which we'll never achieve, but you know we're trying to get there, or we yeah. we think we are. I don't know. If yeah. <laughs> it's like a marriage, you can always do better. Yeah, 
I mean, we're the asshole Americans. We're always going to probably have that moniker the way we go. And uh, everyone hates us around the world and loves us at, at the same time. It's it's a weird dichotomy that we have. I always tease my Canadian friends. I'm like, you know, you guys are the nice ones up in Canada. And we're like your drunken brother who just goes around and starts fights around the world. And you guys are up there going, for fuck's sakes, these guys, why do we have to be next to them? Like uh, they just well, like I said, them. I'd say with, with, if if these uh, projections are right, and I suspect they probably are, be as nice to as many Canadians as you can because you're going to need. Oh, you yeah. might need those friends to be grateful for that. For one the healthcare, so just, yeah, yeah, just try. You're doing a little bit better, yeah. Just, yeah. just, just try hard. I'd, I'd be willing to be forced to use pronouns for the healthcare. <laughs> you know, you give me a great idea though at the show. I'm not even kidding. Uh, your jokes about AI. Um, I just realized that I could process the Chris Voss show. And take the text and put it into probably chat GPT and have it all turned into India uh, language and other languages and then yep. repump it back through the video. And you and I would be probably talking. I don't know if the, I don't know if it'd be proper because you got to be careful. I think it's okay. I think it's up. pretty good. But I could probably do yeah. that and make yeah. the show appealing to other countries, even though we're seeing around the world. Do I get 10%? And, uh, we'll, we'll work on something. We'll have our attorneys contact okay. you in. <laughs> But you know, uh, we'll see what the Indian people think about what we said about the Chinese, and yeah. oh, we'll get hate mail or something. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much, Peter, for coming on the show. This has been Absolutely a delightful pleasure. and insightful, delightful and insightful. That should be in the name of the podcast uh, show. Uh, give us your dot com so people can find you on the internet. Yes, I'm on Twitter at Peter Frankopan, and my web address is www.peterfrankopan.com. And my book is available in all good shops all around the world. There you go. The Earth Transformed. You may have heard of it. You're walking on it right now. The An Untold History, available April 18th, 2023. And uh, check out his other books. He's got The Silk Roads, A New History of the World, The New Silk Roads, and uh, quite a few other books that you should check out as well. I learn from history, people. The smarter you are, the sexy you are. And, uh, you know... Uh, that always works for people. I don't know. People are always looking to be sexy. They buy cars and everything, and they, they do all this stuff. Read books. Be smart. People like you. Anyway, thanks for tuning in to my audience. We certainly enjoy you having uh, here as well. Or for the show, your friends and family. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe. We'll see you.